Great news, my cruciferous cousins. Plant Strong Foods is hosting a March Madness Meals and Minutes sale. Visit plantstrong.com and save up to 30% on every one of our ready-to-eat chilies and stews. It is the perfect time to stock up on these heat-and-eat, tasty meal solutions. Having a stash in your pantry means you're never more than 90 seconds away from a satisfying meal. The sale runs through March 17th while supplies last. Visit plantstrong.com today. Yeah, I mean, everybody seems to talk about, you know, where you get your protein. Well, you know, the real question is, where are you getting your fiber? Because so many people are deficient. It, it's it's a fra- I think it's like one percent of children that meet their their fiber uh, the recommended intakes for fiber. It's almost no none of them because they're eating processed foods all the time. Season three of the Plant Strong podcast explores those Galileo moments where you seek to understand the real truth around your health and dare to see the world through a different lens. This season, we honor those courageous seekers who are paving the way for you and me. So grab your telescope, point it towards your future, and let's get Plant Strong together. She has been called the godmother of vegan dietitians and the high priestess of vegan nutrition. And today, I'm proud to welcome friend, author, and plant strong pioneer, Brenda Davis, to the podcast. Brenda is the author of 12, yes, 12 books, and she's been a speaker at our plant stock events for years and is always a crowd favorite. Not only does she captivate with the energy of a teenager, but her evidence-based research leaves folks inspired regardless of where they are on their own plant-based journey to health. You have questions, Brenda has answers, and likely a book about it as well. That's why I'm particularly excited about this episode where we discuss topics in her latest book, Nourish, the Definitive Plant-Based Nutritional Guide for Families, that she co-wrote with pediatrician Dr. Rishma Shah. As a father of three plant-strong children, I'm often asked about how we do it in the Esselstyn house. I welcome these questions because I don't think people are generally coming from a place of judgment, but more from a place of curiosity. They really truly want to know how to feed their children healthy foods in a fast-paced junk food society without sacrificing the nutrients needed in order to grow and thrive. Today, Brenda addresses some of these common concerns that parents may have Things like, of course, protein, iodine, calcium, iron, zinc, B12, you know, all the same things that we worry about and are concerned about as adults. The goal of this book is not just to provide confidence in plant-based nutrition for health at any age, but also build a life-affirming connection within your family. Nourish offers the solution parents have been waiting for when it comes to deciding what and how to feed their families. Let's dig in with Brenda Davis. Brenda, this is your first time on the Plant Strong podcast. I want to welcome you. Well, thank you for having me, Rip. 
Oh, yeah. And this is season three. I can't believe I've had two seasons and uh, and I haven't had you. So anyway, but it's a really appropriate uh, moment to have you on the Plan Strong podcast because you uh, came out with a new book. Here it is right here. It's called Nourish. Nourish. It's absolutely gorgeous. I've Thank I've read you. it cover to cover. It is really stupendous. You've done a f- fantastic job with it. And I want you to know that on season three of the, the Plant Strong podcast, we're really, we're celebrating the, the, the leaders who have demonstrated the, the courage to seek and also be champions of the truth. And I know that you have been a champion of the truth in nutrition now f- since when? 1980 what? 1989. <laughs> 1989. And can you share with our audience, like, so what led you to that place in 1989 where you really embraced? Now, do you call it, do you like a plant-based or vegan? What is your... You know what? I'm preference? good with both. I, I mean, I'm an ethical vegan, but I'm also a whole food plant-based uh, person. So I'm, I'm good with both. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I mean, I... My husband and I have been married for 42 years, and we just found ourselves slowly gravitating. I, you know, graduated in 1982 uh, from my, you know, nutrition program, and we just found ourselves gravitating towards more and more plant-based diets. We were eating more lentils and tofu and gradually getting rid of meat, and a lot of it was about um, trying to leave a softer footprint, trying to eat a more healthful, higher fiber, um, you know, diet and, and just a, a combination of a variety of things. Uh, and I was actually a public health nutritionist in the late 80s when I decided to, or I should say, we decided to make a, a transition to a, a more completely whole food plant-based uh, diet. And, and for me, it was really an ethical decision because I, I thought to myself, why am I contributing to so much pain, suffering and death when I don't have to? Um, I, I just I want the world to be a more compassionate place. And I, I think the way that animals are being raised is just wrong. It's unjustifiable. And I thought, you know, if I can't do it as a registered dietitian with all of this knowledge about nutrition, who can? And maybe if I take these steps, I can help others who want to do the same to do it really well. And to be quite honest, I was I was really afraid <laughs> because everything that I had learned was based on you know, these four food groups, half of which were animal products. And so it was a re- really scary for me. I'd never met a, a, another real live right. you know, vegan dietitian. <laughs> I mean, I hadn't even met, I met one vegetarian in my whole life. I, yeah. I, I just, I just didn't know if I could do it or if I'd be ousted from the profession that because it was considered in those days a real fringe diet. And I always liked to be liked by everyone. I didn't want to be one of those people that was fringy and everybody was pointing to and no, she's not saying the truth. And so I decided that, you know, I really thought about be doing some other career, but I decided that if I didn't stay and, and help people who wanted to 
to make more ethical and, and ecologically sustainable choices, who would? And I thought, I just have to have the courage to stand up for what yeah. I believe in. And, and so I can remember thinking, the one thing that I'll make sure I do is I'll make sure that everything I say is evidence-based and mm. that and that I know my stuff, my I's are dotted, my T's are crossed, and I can I can debate with anyone on the topic. And so that was kind of the way I proceeded. And to my great delight, <laughs> my profession didn't oust me. They actually loved that there was somebody creating guidelines and you know, providing that kind of support for their patients who wanted or their clients who wanted to do this. So I, you know, had that little niche and I found Vasanto, my writing partner. And and uh, so we just, you know, we just we just plugged away at trying to create resources that were useful and evidence based. Well, boy, did you ever. And <laughs> I mean, look at where you are now uh, since 1989. So is Nourish your 12th book or your 11th? Yes, it's my 12th book. It's your 12th book. So yes. you've previously written 11 books um, that have sold close to a million copies. You've been referred to uh, as the, the godmother of vegan dietitians <laughs> and the high priestess of vegan nutrition. And anybody, anybody that's had the pleasure of hearing you speak, and you speak all over the globe, um, knows that you back up everything you just said. Everything is evidence-based. You dot every I, you cross every T. Uh, you really are immaculate when it comes oh, to, you. To, to, your, to your presentations. And, you know, we've had you, you know, to numerous ones of, or numerous of our events. And the most recent one was Plant Stock 2020. And you gave a great talk on, on keto, right? Uh, the keto <laughs> diet. Um, but I'd, I'd love to, to dive into uh, Nourish uh, just a little bit here. So first, tell me, you know, you've written 11 books. Uh, you probably at some point are like, are like, wow, do I really have another book in me? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so wh why Nourish? Why now? Why Reshma? Tell me about well, that. Yeah, well, I was actually on an airplane going to speak at the Plantrician Project and I was with a friend and we, she sat in the aisle, I sat in the window and we wanted that middle seat free so we could put all our stuff. The flight was packed and Reshma sat right between us. And that's how I met Reshma. And, and we just started talking and I found out she was going to the same conferences as I was. And, uh, and we became friends. We just started hanging out at the conference, met there again the next year. And I remember her saying something like, you know, I just, I want to do more in this, in the plant-based world. And I said, well, Reshma, what we really need is a book uh, for families, for children. We don't have one, a guidebook, something comprehensive. And she said, Oh, she said, I'll tell you what, I'll do it if you'll do it with me. <laughs> and I said, well, I've got two book contracts. I had the Kick Diabetes Cookbook and Kick Diabetes Essentials to write. And I said, once those two are done, I'm on. I'll do it with you. And so that's how it came to be. <laughs> and so, and, and so the, what year was that that you guys were sitting next to each other? That was probably about four years ago. Right. And yeah. so, I mean. And so how was it working together in writing this book? Because it's pretty, pretty impressive what you guys. Have well, put you know what? I, I just feel uh, abundantly blessed 
by uh, this partnership. Reshma is articulate. She is a fantastic writer. She just is so good at social media, which I'm not. Yeah. Uh, so she and she just went for it. And I was I, I'm just um, I never cease to be amazed by her talents. So I, it's just been a joy to work with her. And so the book is broken up into four four parts for the most part, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. You got the first part is consideration. Yeah. Um, and then the second part is care, then confidence, and then connection. Did you guys break it up where you focused on one part and she focused on another? How did you do that? Yeah, so we did. So I took more of the sort of hardcore nutrition uh, material, but we did back a lot of back and forth. So we, you know, we both uh, had input into all of the sections. We sh she did section one, I did section two, which was kind of the big, uh, yeah. the biggest section, and then she did section three, and then we did section four together. So yeah, yeah. well, it's, <laughs> it's laid out beautifully. Um, oh, thank you. And, if, and if you don't mind, I'd love to just read the um, on the dedication page. You guys start, you open it up with a quote from Mother Teresa. It's the openness of our hearts and minds can be measured by how, how wide we draw the circle of what we call family. And then, of course, you've dedicated this book to uh, to each of your your families, which is so, uh, I think, appropriate. Um, what so. What I'd like to, you know, since your specialty is really like the nuts and bolts and um, uh, of a plant-based diet, and so many parents are concerned about, will my child be getting everything they need on a, a plant-based diet? What are the deficiencies that are out there? Uh, any problems there? So um, I'd love for if you could just start out with... Um, as a parent who has, let's say, children between the ages of two and 17, mm -hmm. any issues at all uh, with a plant-based diet? Well, you know, first of all, I would like to preface what I say with this. When you think about the issues, the nutrition issues that are challenging today's children, they are, um, you know, overweight and obesity. We see type 2 diabetes. We see children who are uh, living on highly or ultra processed foods. There's a lack of fiber. There's a lack of a lot of trace minerals. There's a lack of even vitamin A and vitamin C and potassium and, you know, all of these important nutrients. And, and, and often, you know, parents are quite comfortable <laughs> feeding their children, you know, fast food, uh, you know, a fast food kids meal that provides more sodium than the upper limit in one meal. There's hardly any fiber. There's just, you know, it, it's so grossly inadequate. And yet we think this is somehow okay. And feeding a whole food plant-based diet is so scary. 70% of us die of chronic, you know, diseases that are largely diet and lifestyle induced. Uh, so we really need to examine why we're 
you know, questioning um, uh, something that's so loaded with nutrition. And so, yes, there are some issues, but those e those issues are really quite easily resolved. And so the biggest issue for very small children is getting enough calories and, and, you know, making sure that they're, you know, the number one goal for children is adequate growth and development, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and a secondary goal is the prevention of long term diseases. But number one is ensuring adequate growth and development. And uh, and so when you're feeding a child, um, uh, uh, you know, a whole food plant based diet, you want to make sure that it's calorically dense enough to support their their growth. And so whereas for adults challenged with diabetes and heart disease, we're really pulling out the fat a lot in the diet. For a young child, um, we don't want to do that. We're looking at a much higher percentage of, uh, percentage of calories from fat, which would come from things like avocados and nut and seed butters and these kinds of foods, which are perfectly appropriate for young children. Now, the other, once you've got that, uh, taking care of a lot of parents worry about protein, but protein is not a huge issue. Even if you add 20% to the RDA to compensate for a lower digestibility of plant protein from whole plant foods that are high in fiber, it's still not a lot. Uh, you know, a, a, a young child, one to three years of age, uh, they don't they don't even need 20 grams of protein. There was a study recently done by uh, Vici, it's called the Vici study in Germany. And they actually compared the protein intakes of toddlers. And what they found was the omnivores were getting about 2.7 grams per kilogram a day. The, the vegetarians about 2.3 and the vegans about 2.4 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. And, and the RDA is 1.05 for, for toddlers of that age everybody was over double what they needed. So protein is far less of an issue for children than people imagine it to be. So, so, but is that, so if it sounds like a lot of these kids were, um, were twice over the RDA, yeah, sometimes two and a half, is that a problem? Uh, it's probably not at that level. However, we do know when you get to be three or four times above the RDA, that those high animal protein intakes are definitely associated with more rapid growth and overweight and obesity. So we saw that there was an Australian study that showed that. And in fact, there was a study in the States that showed children average about triple the protein that they require. And I think if most of the protein is coming from animal foods, that's a problem. Uh, for a vegan child or a plant-based child, I don't think it's as much of a problem because the protein is coming from whole plant foods, which will help to protect the child. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I love to say that, that um, plant-based proteins are really the, the Goldilocks of protein. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. Oh, I love that. That's, not, that's great. Yeah, they're not, in, they're not inflammatory. They're very no. friendly. Yeah. And they have yeah, all, and it, yeah. And it, it's so consistent with all of the studies we have looking at longevity and disease and protein intakes. There was a huge study in 2016 that, should, you know, even 60 calories of, of protein from animal products 
uh, replacing that with plant foods reduces risk of death uh, significantly. If you're replacing processed meat, it's like a 34% reduction. If you're re replacing red meat, it's a 12% reduction. Yeah. Eggs, it's a 19%. And then there was one from Japan that showed even huger results. Again, with that tiny little replacement of 60 calories, 3% of your total calories from, you know, animal protein with plant protein, and you reduce your risk of, I think it was reduce your risk of cancer by 50% if you're re replacing uh, uh, red meat or uh, processed red meat and about 45 if it was just red meat. But we see this over and over again, that replacing animal protein with plant protein uh, reduces risk of death and disease. You know, just based on that, what you just said, all those numbers uh, with plant-based proteins and how they're protective and how they, you know, um, will basically protect you from these diseases and, and this. How is it that in 2020, that every professional organization and institution isn't behind and leaning into plants and having this be their primary kind of, you know, um, message? To their constituents. I, yeah, I, I think it's starting to shift. I think people are starting to wake up to it. But I think that our the biggest barrier is the power of the animal food industry. And and uh, they they you know they have so much power there that not the CEOs seem to go somewhere between you know, uh, um, expert panels for the government to their industry and back and forth in politics. And, and the agricultural industry is a big part of, you know, that whole realm. And so it, it's a powerful industry. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you've got, but you've got institutions like the World Health Organization. I mean, you have a whole list and nourish of all the ones that are on board. Absolutely. It, and it, it's and it's pretty darn impressive. It is impressive, and it's just growing. Yeah, yeah, by leaps and bounds. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. So, what are what are some other things that you want to talk about besides protein? <laughs> yeah. So, so for for little children, we need to worry about iron. We need to worry about zinc, B twelve, iodine, calcium, and so those you know are are really key things. So, so vitamin D is not a huge issue because normally we start supplementing children from birth with, uh, you know, vitamin D drops, and that's just standard most kids do. And so that's something we, you know, it doesn't matter uh, if you're omnivorous or you're plant-based, vitamin D is an issue for everyone. And Reshma, I know she often says, you know, I've, I've, I've uh, treated all kinds of children with vitamin D deficiency, none of whom were plant-based, you know? Right, right. Uh, so it's an issue for everyone. Uh, iron is also an issue for everyone. And, and it's kind of interesting to look again, you know, your iron stores run out by the time you're about four months of age, somewhere four to six months of age. So, you know, we the first foods we often use are iron fortified foods for children. And some groups say it should be red meat, you know, it should be red meat should be the first uh, food for a child because it's got heme iron and it's an absorbable iron. But I actually went to the USDA nutrient database. This was really fun. And I and I checked out the <laughs> amount of iron in a variety of foods. Six tablespoons of iron fortified infant cereal will give you the 11 milligrams of iron that a baby is recommended. I mean, it's it's higher than a than a full grown man. 
your your iron requirements are eight milligrams. A baby, this little tiny yeah, being, yeah. is like eleven milligrams. So it's almost impossible to get from food. So iron fortified infant cereal, you get about um, you know I think it was thirteen. I, I think it took thirteen teaspoons of 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 uh, lentils or sort tofu, uh, but it was like seventy teaspoons of baby beef. You oh. know, it was just huge. And even the chicken was like 40 or something like that. So this, you know, push for beef and chicken and stuff, you're not going to get anywhere close to the RDA for iron using those. The iron fortified infant cereal, or if you really just want to do whole food, then you would need to use some iron drops for that uh, stage of the game. And then during the toddler years, iron is still an issue. And so we just need to be sure. One of the things that a parent can do is use the infant cereal. My daughter, what she does is use two thirds flour, one third infant cereal for all the little you know, mm -hmm. breads and whatever she makes. And, and so you're getting that added to the diet that way. But of course the best sources of iron for children who are eating plant-based are legumes. Lentils are a wonderful source of iron. And all of the other legumes are a decent source of iron, as are some of the seeds, like pumpkin seeds are a wonderful source of iron. So this is a, an option and should be a regular, you know, regularly featured in the diet of children as they grow. And then the other, you know, B12 is always an what, issue. Before you, before, before you move on yeah. from iron, and is there, is there a way to help the absorption of, uh, of plant-based irons? Oh, yeah. So, so, of course, you have these two types of iron. You have heme iron, which is really blood iron. Heme is blood. Uh, that comes from animal products, not dairy, but meat. Uh, and, and then you have non-heme iron. And, and there, th this is really interesting because there are some significant differences. One thing we know about heme iron is it's absorbed uh, just directly into the bloodstream. The rate of absorption is somewhere 15 to 35%. So it's very absorbable, but it also can act as a pro-oxidant. Mm -hmm. And so it can, it can increase oxidative stress in the body. And there's no filter for absorbing it. It seems to just get absorbed regardless of what your iron status is. Whereas with the plant iron, a lot of the iron in beans, for example, comes in a form where it's absorbed in this molecule of a thousand you know, units of iron that are slowly released as you need them. And your body has a way of, of, of sort of absorbing more if it needs more and absorbing less if it needs less with this non-heme iron. Now with non-heme iron, you absorb less. However, you can dramatically increase your absorption by doing two things. One is by reducing the inhibitors of iron absorption. So being careful about uh, things like uh, phytates and polyphenolic compounds. So, so phytates, if a child, all they eat is unleavened bread and they have very few other foods in, their, in an impover impoverished nation, they end up with iron and zinc deficiency because you know the, the unleavened breads, you're not breaking down phytates. And then the other thing is, is um, uh, polyphenolic compounds, which isn't usually an, as much of an issue for children. It's more an issue for people that drink tea with every meal. Mm. And it can reduce, both of these compounds can reduce iron absorption by 50 to 90%. So we need to just be aware of those. You don't want to be sprinkling bran over a child's food, like wheat bran. A lot of people sprinkle wheat bran on their cereal. 
you don't want to be doing that because it's really high in phytates and it inhibits the absorption of minerals. Now, the other thing you want to do is enhance the uh, or increase the enhancers of iron absorption. And the biggest one is vitamin C. So when you're eating your bowl of cereal that's got a lot of iron, you want to be having some oranges or grapefruit or strawberries on top or something vitamin C or you're having tofu, stir fry or whatever at dinner. You've got some, um, you know, red peppers and broccoli and cauliflower and thing, you know, vegetables with vitamin C and, and then garlic and ginger and carotenoids. And there are quite a few compounds present in plants that also enhance the absorption of, of iron. So just by including a lot of fruits and vegetables in the diet, you will increase the absorption of, of non-heme iron. Yeah. And then, and then when you're doing those, those, um, those vitamin C <clears throat> um, rich fruits and vegetables, <clears throat> should that be at the same meal or just sometime during the day? Does that matter? Uh, it, it's much better at the same meal. So, so you want at every meal, you want to be having some fruit or vegetable. Uh, so, you know, you, it, it doesn't matter what meal it is. You want to be doing that. But when you're eating your lentils, that's especially when you want the red peppers there or whatever, some sort of vitamin C rich. Uh, it should be at the same meal. It's just like with the the inhibitors of absorption. It's more at the same meal. So if you're drinking tea, drink it a couple of hours after you've eaten yeah. or a little bit before you've eaten rather than right with your meal if you're challenged with iron status. That's a great that's a great bit of advice. So I think I interrupted you. So you're going on to B12. Yeah. So B12 is something anyone eating a plant-based diet needs to be aware of because vitamin B12, it's not something that it's something that's made by bacteria. And so it's present in animal products. It, it might be present in some plant products if we didn't sanitize everything so well. So for example, in Indonesia, where they make tempeh in these old wooden vats that are contaminated with B12 producing bacteria, their tempeh is a really good source of B12. Wow. Um, you know, but, but we tend to do our tempeh in stainless steel, uh, perfectly clean, sanitized vats. So we're not gonna have a lot of B12 there. So even though there's a little bit of B12 in mushrooms, there may be a little bit of B12 in seaweed, when we dry the seaweed, the B12, the active B12 can get converted to inactive forms, which, you know, won't serve as B12. So we just need to be aware that, that, um, that our, you know, we can't rely on plant foods for B12 unless they're fortified with B12. And so there are lots of breakfast cereals that are fortified with B12. Most of our non-dairy milks are fortified with B12. Meat analogs like little veggie burgers are sometimes fortified. Um, things like uh, like nutritional yeast, some nutritional yeasts are fortified with B12. Like Red Star. Red Star. Like yes, Red Star. And there's some Bragg's and there are some, a variety yeah. of, of uh, producers that do, but Red Star, and even Red Star, you have to be cautious because Red Star has the Red Star vegetarian support formula and they have the M MCB 500, which is not fortified with B12. So you need to make sure you're getting the vegetarian support formula. Boy, okay, you know your <laughs> stuff, okay. Um, what, what else? Uh, so, so zinc is another one, but generally if you're, if you're covering your basis for iron, you're also covering your basis for zinc because zinc is, you know, the concentrated sources are the legumes, the lentils and legumes and 
lentils are a type of legume, but other legumes like beans and split peas and all of those. And then again, the seeds. So um, when you compare nuts and seeds, the nuts tend not to be quite as concentrated as the seeds in protein and minerals, vitamins and minerals. So things like hemp seeds and chia seeds and, and pumpkin seeds. Now in the nut category, the, the cashews are fair, fairly good source of, of zinc, but also whole grains are a reasonable source. When we refine grains, we remove things like zinc and we don't add them back. So you're always better off with the whole grain. So, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, you just you brought up whole grains, and I just I just want to kind of divert for a second because there's so much swirling, especially with paleo and keto around whole grains and beans, and they're loaded with you know anti nutrients and lectins, and they're inflammatory. Um, can you like help us separate the wheat from the chaff here and get to the the truth? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's so funny that um, that that in that paleo keto world, because they're well, the keto especially are very anti carbohydrate. I mean, it's an extremely low carbohydrate diet, so all of that's gone. But in the paleo world, it's it they're trying to replicate the diet of our you know paleolithic ancestors, and so they you know believe that they didn't consume a lot of legumes and grains. Although we actually have really good evidence that they did consume those foods. But the thing that I find the most fascinating where the paleo world is concerned is, is yes, paleo diets were fairly high protein diets, probably about 30% of calories from protein. However, they were also diets that contained about 150, you know, 100 to 150 grams of fiber. Try to do that with it without a truckload of plants in your diet. You don't get any fiber from animal products. So, so um, you know, I, I I always find it so funny that they're so focused on one key nutrient, protein, to the exclusion of everything else we know about what people actually ate in paleo times. So try to get 100, 150 grams of of, of, of fiber without plants, try to get the seven to 10,000, you know, milligrams of potassium they got without plants, try to get, you know, all of these, the vitamin C, they average like 600 milligrams. Vegans don't average anywhere close to those numbers for, for those nutrients. And they're getting, you know, all plants. And so these diets were extremely high plant or very plant rich diets. And so I think, you know, they, they need to open their eyes to that a little bit. Now, in terms of, of lectins and all of these considerations, yeah. lectins, when you cook a food, you destroy the lectins. I mean, literally, they're broken down. It's not an issue. Now, for some people who are very sensitive, I would caution them about, like, some people are sensitive to lectins. And so, taking say chickpea flour and making something that's cooked for two minutes uh you may still have some lectins there that could be problematic for you but generally what people need to understand is there are many different types of lectins some of them are found to be anti-carcinogenic some of them are found to actually be quite favorable to health some can cause problems especially with the gastrointestinal system and so you would want to be somewhat cautious, but generally when we cook beans and lentils, we're cooking them more than, you know, uh, way more than what we need to cook them to destroy the lectin. So it's really not an issue. And to me, the acid test is really simple. 
Yeah. Look at what the healthiest, longest lived people on the planet mm. consume. If you look at the blue zones, the one common feature to every blue zone we know of is that legumes are a dietary staple. If they were poison, they probably wouldn't be a staple in the you know diets of every long lived population we know of. So I, I, to me, that's the acid test and that's the proof. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, that the in looking back over the paleolithic you know kind of thing diet they were getting 100 to 150 grams of protein i'm sorry of fiber fiber yeah of fiber which is that is an enormous amount <laughs> and, and i just love for you to speak for a second on um the importance of fiber you know it, it acts yeah. it's more than just you know kind of a nature's broom that, that helps you know sweep us clean and and how so many Americans are deficient in, in fiber. Yeah, I mean, everybody seems to talk about, you know, where you get your protein. Well, you know, the real question is, where are you getting your fiber? Because so many people are deficient. It, it's it's a fra I think it's like 1% of children that meet their, their fiber, uh, the recommended intakes for fiber. It's 1%. a little more... Yeah, it's really, really small, uh, really small. It's almost no, none of them because they're eating processed foods all the time. Yeah. So it's a very tiny amount. And that 1% is probably the whole food plant-based children. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it, this is not good news. And I'll tell you why it's not good news. And you know this well, Rip, but it's not good news because, you know, years ago, we used to think exactly what you said. It's nature's broom. It helps to keep our intestinal tract clean. It helps to prevent constipation. And that's important. But, you know, not the hugest deal, I guess. Um, but now we know, we know that fiber is the food that feeds our gut microbiome. Mm. And all of the bacteria in our gut that that is is absolutely critical to the functioning of every organ in our body, every body system, our blood pressure, our brain function, our, our heart function, just everything depends on that gut microbiome. We know this now um, uh, way, way more than what we knew at 20 years ago. We had hardly a clue 20 years ago. And, and when you eat a high fiber diet, you are basically telling that gut microbiome to stay healthy. We're feeding it well. We're promoting the growth of the healthy bacteria in the gut and reducing the growth of the what we call the pathogenic or the harmful bacteria in the gut. And, and that affects our production of TMAO. It, it, it just affects so many things. So it, it's it's absolutely critical, and uh, and and that's you know another plus for plant based for sure. Well, and um, I don't know if you know who Dr. Will Balshewitz is, but yes, he wrote sure. a book, Fiber Fueled, and is just you know knocking it out of the park with uh, with 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 uh, fiber and the microbiome and the gut health and all that. Oh yeah, a wonderful best-selling book, and yeah. I read it cover to cover myself. And uh, it's it's really important for people to understand that um, the the value of the gut microbiome. So it, I think it's a great book for people. Yeah, what about um, what about iodine or um, EPA and DHA? Yeah, so so those are a couple of issues that are definitely worth uh, discussing. So the iodine issue, 
when you look at, um, you know, cognitive function in children, the number one reason globally for severe cognitive impairment in uh, children is iodine deficiency, by far the number one cause of of, of a reverse or, or of a preventable uh, 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 cognitive impairment. Uh, and even if you, you are just marginally deficient in iodine, uh, you can rob your baby of about 10 to 15 IQ points. Um, huh. So it's, it's really, this is not a nutrient to mess around with. And, and what I see in the vegan world, see a lot of the iodine uh, that, that omnivores get comes from fish and from dairy products. And the reason dairy products are so rich in iodine is because they're used to clean the equipment that we're milking the cows with. And oh. so there's a lot of iodine that gets in there for that reason. It's not that it's somehow inherently rich in iodine. Um, and, and so if you look at a vegan diet, you're removing some of the key sources of iodine. And, and one, of the, one of the things that globally we've done to try to put a dent in iodine deficiency and, and cognitive impairment in children is to iodize salt. And so that we're, it's a cheap vehicle to provide salt to the population. And it's made a huge difference in reducing iodine uh, deficiency globally. Now, of course, uh, people get concerned about using iodized salt. They get concerned about using any salt. And so some parents will pick, you know, Himalayan pink sea salt or, you know, some of these fancy um, non-iodized salt um, salts because they're trying to do whole food, plant-based more. And, and, yeah. and, so, and, and so there are very few sources of iodine with the exception of seaweed. And seaweed is um, so loaded in iodine that it's really easy to exceed the upper limit for iodine. And you can flip the coin there and cause problems with thyroid function because you're actually getting too much iodine. So just to give you, put this in perspective, if you're eating nori, which is that kind of little seaweed yeah. snack that kids love, my, my, it's not an issue. Uh, oh, oh, no, no. My, my kids have like one of those little packs at least once a day. Yeah. Perfect. It's just not an issue because nori is not super concentrated in iodine. Like one of those big square sheets might, ha might have a hundred milligrams or a microgram, sorry, a hundred right. micrograms. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's, so that's that absolutely fine. So what you need for an adult is 150 for kids. It's 110 to 130 in infancy, and then it goes down to about 90. And so it's in that bulk, ballpark. It's not that far off from an adult intake. But what you do need to be aware of is 1 16th of a teaspoon of kelp powder is 150 micrograms. 1 16th of a teaspoon. And wow. so if you're being liberal with kelp and, you know, pouring it on foods or eating a lot of kelp, you can go uh, beyond the upper limit very, very quickly. So if you use that as a, a source in your child's diet, it's a very small sprinkle each day. That's it. And you want to be cautious of that. The other thing about seaweed is the amounts of iodine it's not consistent like it would be in a supplement. Uh, they can vary quite a lot. And so just be aware of that too. But the nori, I think, is, is a pretty good solution. If you get 
you know, one of those little packs and you get 100 micrograms and then you're eating a variety of, of uh, whole plant foods, you're going to get bits from all of those whole plant foods and you should be uh, in the ballpark. The other thing parents can do is if they are providing a multivitamin mineral supplement, they can select one that in includes iodine. Yeah. Yep. Well, okay. Um, let's move on if you're good with it to, um, yeah, to EPA and DHA. Yeah. So EPA and DHA, these, just so people understand, these are omega-3 fatty acids that are the sort of biologically active forms of omega-3 fatty acids. So a, a lot of the, the, the brain, the gray matter of the brain is actually DHA. The fat in the brain is actually DHA. It's important for the eyes. It's important. Every cell membrane of the body, it, you want these essential fatty acids in these cell membranes. You don't want trans fats and saturated fats or many of them that would compromise uh, that the functioning, the flexibility, permeability, um, you know, all of these important features of cell membranes need to be there. So these are, are fats that are extremely important to human health. And, and the main source of these fats in the human diet tends to be fish. And so people often get concerned, well, if you're not eating fish, where are you getting your omega-3s? But the reality is you can get omega-3s from plants. So, so things like flax seeds and chia seeds and hemp seeds and walnuts are all sources of these uh, of, of omega-3s, but the omega-3s in plants are called alpha-linolenic acid. And alpha-linolenic acid is the essential omega-3 because it can get slowly converted, elongated and desaturated into these biologically active omega-3s. And so the, the, the big question is, is how efficient is our conversion? Can we make enough? And, and the problem with that is we don't really know. We have a few studies showing very poor conversion, but we have some studies showing reasonably efficient conversion, especially in young women. And so we, you know, it's a bit of a crapshoot with EPA and DHA. No, so what we generally recommend is if you're pregnant or lactating, you probably have pretty good conversion. But what we know is in vegan breast milk, the levels are significantly lower than they are in omnivorous breast, in omnivores breast milk. So we generally would recommend uh, including at least 200 milligrams of DHA a day because it's so important for a baby's brain development. So we would say, you know, a supplement of 300 milligrams with 200 milligrams DHA daily for a pregnant or lactating woman, woman is probably a pretty good idea. Um, for children, uh, again, we're not sure, but we, we believe that the, the risks um, are probably outweighed by the benefits, uh, potential benefits of including a small amount. And, and so this, what what we would generally suggest what people again this is something that is a surprise to a lot of people fish get their omega-3s from plants in the ocean <laughs> yeah, yeah um just like and this is funny too because animals get their essential amino acids from plants because plants make all the essential amino acids or the pro you know the little components that build our protein it's the same with the omega-3 fatty acids they're made by plants fish have them because they get them at some point on the food chain from these plants and so what you can do is actually culture these plants and and you know they come in liquid form all, 
often and and they're flavored and you can take a little bit of of these uh, things. Now, is it essential? We don't know. Um, it, the the guess is that children who have never had the fish and these things with direct forms of EPA and DHA probably get pretty efficient at converting. They probably produce plenty of, you know, delta 60 saturates and all of the enzymes necessary for these conversions. But we're not quite there with the research. We don't have a lot of studies. And so parents can, you know, play it safe and include a little bit, or they can try. But we, the other thing is testing isn't common and it's not very accurate at this point in time. Yeah. So you can get omega-3 tests, but they're a bit questionable and they're not, you don't walk into your doctor's office and he easily, you know, uh, orders, a, you know, a, a, an omega-3 test. It just doesn't, we're not there yet. And, and so it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, well, are there, are there, are there any telltale signs of deficiencies with that? You know what, what I would suggest the telltale signs of deficiencies, what you have to say, well, what do omega-3s do for us? And, and so they, they help omega-3s will help with uh, the functioning of your cell membranes. They'll help with your brain function. They help with your eyes. They help with, you know, all of the, I mean, fats in general will help with protection of, you know, with a lot of body systems, the production of hormones, um, you know, the omega-3 fatty acids are important for these hormone-like, the production of hormone-like com compounds that affect inflammation and blood pressure and all of these different body systems. And so if you're, if you're really challenged with some of those things like blood pressure and inflammation, all of those, it may be worth trying to see if that's an issue. Certainly you can get your levels tested, but as I said, it's still a little questionable how accurate those tests are. So it's not like there's some big red flag and that's part of the issue. It, so it's really hard to, to know. So I myself take uh, EPA and DHA maybe twice a week um, because I figure you know, most of the experts in omega-3 nutrition will say eat fish twice a week. Uh, so I figure, okay, I'm going to take EPA and DHA twice a week uh, as somebody that, you know, taking in a, probably a little less than someone eating fish. But, and and then I do everything else to maximize my conversion. So so I eat a lot of flax and chia and hemp and I, and I you know, and I, I don't, I don't eat a lot of, um, you know, saturated fat or trans fats or any of those things. And, and my diet's, uh, you know, a good diet. I don't overdo omega-6s and that can compromise uh, a conversion. So if you eat a lot of omega-6s, so you're pouring the safflower and the sunflower oil on your food, you're going to reduce your ability to convert alpha-linolenic acid into the longer chain uh, omega-3s. And people eating a lot of fat that can impair conversion as well. If you're eating a 40% fat diet versus a 20% fat diet, your conversion will be a lot less with the 40%. Yeah. yeah. And those, and those omega sixes are found uh, predominantly in what processed oils and then also yes. process, processed foods, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, yeah. And if you look at um, the USDA um, and what Americans have been eating, and I know you're from Canada, but, but Americans, it's like 60% of our calories are coming from processed and refined foods. And so you're yeah. right. 
there's a huge imbalance between those omega sixes and omega threes. That's not healthy. No. And so you just want to be aware of, of uh, that you're getting a source of omega-3 in your daily diet. And so if you're not using any supplements, you're wanting to make sure that you're using um, chia seeds, flax seeds, hemp seeds, walnuts. Uh, and and if you're, uh, you know, trying to really, minim- well, for children, all of these things are good choices. And but do be aware with flax seeds, you're not going to get much omega-3 if they're whole. So you need to grind them. And and chia seeds, not as much, they're not as hard as flax seeds. And often they're soaked to make chia pudding and such. So you'll you'll get a little more from them. But grinding them, if you're just sprinkling them on foods, can help as well with the chia seeds. Yeah. Tell me, Brenda, so what supplements do you take over the course of maybe a, a week? Okay, so I, uh, I generally, and, and people might be surprised at me saying this, but I, I generally take a multivitamin a mineral supplement, but I use a whole food supplement. And I do that because I want to make sure I've got a source of iodine, I don't use a lot of salt. And, and I also want to make sure I'm getting a little bit of extra choline. And there's a few nutrients. I like getting the, the boost of zinc, especially during COVID. Uh, so I, I use a whole food. It's a, it's a company in Canada where they, so it, there's no folic acid. It's folate. Uh, it's all, you know, um, non-synthetic uh, nutrients. And so yeah. I use that. It's got, an, it's got a reasonable amount of vitamin D as well. So it's that extra little bit of vitamin D. And then I um, do the EPA DHA like maybe twice a week. And I'm not very good at remembering it. So sometimes it's right, right. Like twice a month. <laughs> and, and so so is that is that pretty much it? The multivitamin and then the DHA and the EPA? Yeah, sometimes I take um, a, a B12 as well because the B12 you can't really rely on from a multi. You can, I mean, if the multi is a really good quality and it breaks down well, uh, you'll get the B12. But often the amounts of B12 in multis is really small, and so just taking an extra thousand micrograms a week, uh, I, and then I don't worry about it. So that's the other one that I take. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're not going to believe it, but I mean, our time has just flown by. Uh, <laughs> it's just crazy to me. Uh, I feel like I need to have you on again for another segment where we can, where we can dive into prebiotics, uh, probiotics. We can dive into soy. We can dive into, you know, uh, you, you talk about in the book, how really there's over the last decade, there's been three huge dietary trends. One is plant-based, which is predominantly carbohydrate rich, paleo, which is protein rich and keto that is fat rich. And I'd love to dive into those, just like those three different dietary trends, what's going on with them? What are some of the pros and cons in each? I would love to. Thanks, Rip. I would love to. So, so let me just close by saying that, uh, you know, anybody that's out there, nourish, it will nourish your it will nourish your soul. It's fantastic for, 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 for families. You know, Brenda, uh, I know that you know your personal and professional goal is to make this world a kinder and more compassionate place. And you and uh, you and all your work and what you and Raish Raish Raishma, right? Raishma have done with nourish uh 
you are totally making that happen. And you're giving families just a beautiful, beautiful, clear path to, to, help, to help get there. Thank you so much. Have right. a great day. Bye, Brenda. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Rip. Isn't Brenda fantastic? She is clearly an expert, but her optimism is the thing to me that is so addicting. I hope that this conversation encourages your family to try something new one step at a time. Perhaps it's a new recipe, or maybe you'll plant a small garden together like we did. There is no better way to share love and health than through healthy food. Can't get enough? Tune in next week as we continue this talk about Nourish with co-author Dr. Rishma Shah, a plant-based pediatrician and affiliate clinical instructor at Stanford University School of Medicine. I get emails from people all the time sharing how they have taken our free seven-day challenge or attended one of our weekend events, and they've gotten really jazzed about making the switch, only to fall off the wagon a few days or weeks later. And I hear the question, how do you make this lifestyle stick? How do you go all in? For me, the answer was and is, it's in the daily details. Making room for my lifestyle is a non-negotiable. It comes first because without the time and space to ensure I have meals and snacks ready for me, then everything would fall apart. Newsflash here, folks. We get hungry just about every three hours. We do not want to be caught by surprise and have a drive through as our only meal option. Don't allow yourself to be caught off guard. Build the daily roadmap that will navigate how you move throughout the day and then it can become easy and painless. Now, yes, it takes some time, but what I found is that when you have the mindset that this matters most, you strip away the decision fatigue and you just eat the next right thing because A, it's available, and B, it's ready for you. If this sounds familiar to you and you want to invest some time in yourself, I strongly recommend you join the waitlist for our Rescue 10X program. The Plant Strong team has led hundreds of people through this 10-week mindset mastery program, helping them to develop the daily habits needed to make this, well, mindless. Stop negotiating with yourself, discover your deepest why, set attainable goals with my team, and be supported live through this 10 weeks of training. Go to the show notes or visit plantstrong.com today to join the waitlist. Our next session will open late March, and I want you to be one of the first to know. Thank you for listening to the Plant Strong Podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to subscribe, rate, and review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the great news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything to me. Have you had your own Galileo moment that you'd like to share? What happened when you stepped into the arena and shed the beliefs that you thought to be true? I'd love to hear about it. Visit plantstrongpodcast.com to submit your story and to learn more about today's guests and sponsors. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, 
Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Kryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.